Mixtape with Scott. This is your host, Scott Cunningham. Uh, this is a podcast devoted to telling the stories or listening to the stories of living economists and uh, telling oral history of the economics profession over the last 50 years. This week uh, is a guest who uh, was the editor of my first published paper, um, Marion Bittler, professor of economics at the University of California, Davis research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, research fellow at IZA. Um, Marion is part of a kind of longer series, in a way, of um, work on causal inference. Uh, she, as you know, I've been very interested in not just causal inference, but also sort of the social history of it. And this conjecture that I've had, which is that it, it the credibility revolution didn't spread through econometrics, it, it really spread through uh, labor markets and social networks, primarily through the students of uh, people like Card, Kruger, uh, Invens also, and Angrist. And what I wanted to do this year was to interview more of those students and just learn a little bit more of their story. And Marion was uh, Josh's, Josh Angris, alf in alphabetical order, his first student at MIT. It was a cohort. It was a collection of students uh, at MIT, but Marion was uh, was one of them. And so I was wanting to talk to talk to her for that reason. Uh, I was also wanting to talk to her because she has a very interesting traject career trajectory. She uh, went to MIT uh, did her PhD, but then she went into government first, uh, and then worked her way uh, worked her way around into academia, which is kind of interesting. That uh, we recently interviewed Wilbert Vanderclau, who went the other direction, started out in academia, and then worked his way into government. And so I thought those were kind of interesting stories too, of just you know the different ways that economists kind of find their way and find their home you know, uh, in this, in this career that I thought a lot of people would find really, really interesting, but also Marion is somebody that I think this, this idea that one of the things, one of the drivers of the economist, uh, is not just that they're good at math, although Marion is excellent at mathematics and that's been a common theme too. It's not just that that you could say that one of the drivers of the of the reason of the selection of people who become economists is something about an interest in the overall well-being of humanity and a desire to study the public policies that might make it better. The wealth of nations, income inequality. And so uh, Marion is someone who sorted into a, a very strong interest, what she calls the floor on consumption, uh, public policies that are aimed at the poorest of uh, the American population. And so um, it's a pleasure to have her on the show. Uh, she's a brilliant economist and a lovely person and uh, has written very seminal works in applied econometrics that she's also going to tell us about that I think actually has even played in a lot of relevance even today in this difference in differences literature uh, that's kind of gone through its own revolution the last five years. So that's a mouthful, uh, but thank you so much for tuning in. I'm going to turn it over to myself right now and Dr. Bittler as we listen to her story and her career. Thanks a lot. 
Okay, well, this is a really nice experience to see uh, someone who I've uh, actually never had extended conversations with, but uh, was the editor of one of my very first uh, publications, uh, Dr. Marion Bettler. Dr. Bettler, thank you. Marion, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and oh. also honestly a little intimidated given some of the other folks you've had on, but <laughs> here goes nothing. <laughs> Well, uh, tell us for the sake of the listener, your full title and who pays your paycheck. Uh, I'm a professor of economics at UC Davis and uh, they pay my paycheck. Um, and uh, also, uh, you know, affiliated with the Center for Poverty and Inequality Research at UC Davis. Oh, okay, cool, cool. All right, great. Well, let's do an icebreaker. So tell me about a vacation that you took when you were younger it's not necessarily your favorite vacation, but it is something that pops has popped in your head every now and then. Uh, when I was in college, uh, I was uh, I finished up most of my courses in the fall of the last year I was there, and I planned a trip to Eastern Europe. And I sometimes think of that as kind of you know, uh, a really fun trip. And yet it sort of challenged me because I was traveling a bit by myself. So I went to, you know, I didn't go anyplace super exotic, but for mm. me at the time, it was more exotic than, you know, growing up in central Pennsylvania, uh, uh, where I grew up. Um, and it was really an uh, interesting time. And I thought of it recently because I, I had gone to Prague and Budapest and, um, Warsaw on this trip because it was shortly after the wall fell, like in the year or so after that. And I was just recently back in Prague and reflecting how different Prague looks now. Um, you know, I, I'm sure part of it is just that I was in different parts of the city. I was there most recently for a conference and, you know, we were staying in the old part of the city, but it certainly uh, looks a lot more like uh, it, it looks a, a lot more, the part of the city, maybe it was just the part of the city I was in is a lot more similar to other parts of Western Europe than I remember thinking it was at the time when I went there in 1991. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's neat. I mean, the the getting to do stuff as a young adult and then growing up, it is it's neat because you kind of had an adult's view as a and then you watched it really change. It is that that's I actually don't know if I have had that. I've not, I didn't, I have, I only started going to Europe, I think af, after grad school. So I had never got to see things back then. I think it was also interesting because I used to travel a lot more and now I'm sort of, you know, middle-aged. I have children, I go to places for conferences and I don't do the sort of, you know, more pushing yourself adventure-ish, more adventure-ish. I'm not saying it was adventure-ish, but it was more adventuresome than the travel I do now and remembering right you know, taking a late night train uh, to Warsaw, like a, a night train so that I wouldn't have to get a hotel room. And then the, um, I think the Uriel Pass had just become okay in Poland. And I was stopped by some ticket folks who didn't speak English and they sort of questioned it. And so then I was sort of trying to find someone else on the train who could explain my situation to them, which happened. But, you know, that sort of thing, I, I don't think I put myself out there in quite the same way now, in part because, you know, I would just stay at a hotel and go in the morning now. Right, 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 right. Oh, that's cool. So, so, all right, well, let's talk about your childhood. So you said you grew up in Pennsylvania. Where in Pennsylvania? Yeah, State College. So I am the, I am part of the, the, uh, 
not so atypical experience of economists. My dad was a professor of metallurgy at Penn State, and I grew up in State College where Penn State is. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, wait, what's Penn State? What's college? Wait, it's um, State College. So you said, yeah, it's State what, College. What's it like as a kid? Um, it's a it's a college town. It's actually, I, I mean, um, like a lot of other sort of college towns that are not terribly close to urban areas. Um, so it's pretty there. There's mountains. It, it was a great place to grow up. Um, you know, very much uh, wandered around freely. And um, although at the same time, it was sort of a not very diverse setting, um, you know, sort of the it was a mix of people who worked for the university or were at the university, or then, you know, the school district extended out a little further. So there were some other folks there, but it was a very homogeneous kind of place in a lot of ways. I mean, maybe not class-wise, but certainly race ethnicity-wise, it was yeah. uh, very homogeneous, but it, mm -hmm. it was a good place to grow up. I mean, mm -hmm. of course, as a kid, all you can think about when you're a spoiled kid is like, I can't wait till I get to go experience the big world out there, you know, right. but- what did you like to do when you were like, if I had found you on a Saturday when you were like middle school, what would I have found you doing? Probably uh, playing sports. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I played um, I played uh, soccer, uh, basketball. Um, a little later, I took up handball, which is like not team handball like the Europeans, but sort of it's similar to um, racquetball. I played racquetball. Um, so oh, lots of sports. You were always athletic. Yeah, relatively athletic. Yeah. Did you play? Did you play sports in high school too? Yeah, I played basketball in high school. Um, we didn't have so I'm sufficiently old that uh, uh, I was born in 1967. So they didn't have uh, girls soccer. So I play. I had to stop playing with a community team in around 10th grade. I think. Uh, oh, oh, I see. Okay, okay. Is your family athletic? Like your like your parents and stuff like that. Uh, I think my dad was pretty athletic. Um, he, he skied in college and he sort of played handball. That's how I took it up. He was a handball player. So I took it up, um, with him and he, he sort of, I mean, not like, you know, it was an important part of our lives. I'm not going to say we're like, you know, we're just normal people who exercise a lot, but it was an important part of our lives. So. Mm -hmm. Well, so how big was your high school? Was it a pretty big one or small? Yeah, I think it was about 2,000 students. Mm. Although it was weirdly split into two buildings, one for ninth and 10th grade and one for 11th and 12th grade. Mm. Okay. What kind of classes What kind of classes did you enjoy the most back then? Uh, probably my favorite classes were math and history. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I love, I took AP history. I loved American history and world history. Um, and then in Pennsylvania, you also got a year of Pennsylvania history, just as I think in most states, you get some yeah. sort of history that's tailored to the place where you grew up. So. Oh, I bet that. Yeah. And it's like Pennsylvania has got a big part of the story of America. So it's pretty cool. Um, well, so what when you were in, what, what would your teachers have said about you as a student back then if they had tried to describe you? I think they would have described me as quiet, um, but serious. Yeah. Um, uh, I think that probably would have been most of it. I mean, I loved math, so I think I was on the, you know, uh, super nerdy on the math team, you know, did. Oh, you were, you were on the math team? Yeah. 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 
all of that, those sorts of things. Um, Okay. Okay. Well, so what did you want to be when you grew up in high school? I, uh, I think when I finished, I was, I knew I wanted to do some sort of science, um, but I was, you know, science or math or engineering, but I wasn't sure what, and I actually, um, enrolled in, they had a program called engineering science. Um, and then I had my first set of labs and then it was made clear to me that, you know, the lab part was not my strong point. So I was taking electricity, uh, an EE class and, you know, my project, like everybody else's circuit things looked really nice and well put together. And mine were sort of a train wreck. Um, so <laughs> I switched the math then, uh, which was more suitable. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So did, was it always kind of like predestined that you thought you would go to Penn state? I think, I think I could have gone somewhere else, but it was, it was uh, at the time Penn, I don't know, I think they still offer this, but you, you got half tuition off if you went to Penn state. And so that sort of made it quite inexpensive to go. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that seemed like a good, a good option. I think it worked out well for me. Um, you know, it was a sort of very diverse place. So you could kind of have any experience you wanted, but also you could sort of find research, research experiences, uh, you know, to get a bit more of a sense of what stuff was like. And yeah. I also think, you know, it was a big advantage to, I mean, I think it's an advantage for anyone who's going to college, whose family has folks who understand the system, you know, uh, to, to, to be able to take advantage of it. But um, it definitely helped because I sort of understood how to figure out what professors to talk to, all these things that I see a lot of students in, in my undergraduate classes, they don't quite understand how to take advantage of these things because they don't have the same, you know, uh, advantage of having parents who sort of experience the system. Right, 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 right. Well, did you take any econ classes at Penn State? I took one, I took uh, one uh, introductory micro or macro course. I think oh. it was like a combined course, actually. And then I helped a friend who was an international relations major. But, you know, for part of the time, I didn't have that much to do because I didn't have very many classes to finish up in the fall when I was um, getting ready to complete. And I... Um, I sat in on her trade class um, and and helped her sort of pass the trade class. So I really oh. enjoyed that, sort of the simple trade models. Um, so is that when you, did you get interested in econ just from that experience or was it just sort of light? No, it was a little bit different from that. So when I, uh, um, I went off to, uh, I so after college, I applied to PhD programs in math and history Um and it's a lot harder to get supported to get a PhD in history. So I pursued the math uh, uh, path. I went to the University of Minnesota for a year and um, I was sort of unsure if it was the right thing for me because it just wasn't around about the world around us. So I took you're a class. already kind of, yeah, because you got this history. I was curious if you got this history side, it's like you're kind of interested in humans and human life. Yes. Yes. Right. And so yeah. I ended up, they have an uh, applied economics, um, you know, uh, department as a, as a land grant school. And so I took some econ classes over there and I got connected to Ed Green, who was a theorist who taught the sort of first class there. And, yeah. you know, I sort of realized, okay, I probably don't want to stick this out. And he had, he had connections at the federal reserve board and so he encouraged me to apply for a research assistantship. And so I applied to be a 
RA and then I went off to the board for a couple of years and then I applied to PhD programs. Oh, so you went to the Federal Reserve Board? Yeah, as a research assistant for two oh. years. Oh, that's very common. It seems like that's not terribly uncommon now with these pre-docs, but was that common back then to be an undergraduate? At, well, you had done this master's. No, I didn't have a master's. I oh, just you didn't did have the master's. Yeah. Oh. I, I don't know about common, but there were plenty of research assistants at the, at the board. I mean, who would come in and, you know, about a third, I think a third to half would go and get PhDs in economics and the other ones would go, you know, figure out economics wasn't for them. So people, you know, stayed on, they got stats degrees more commonly. I think they got law degrees or MBAs after mm -hmm. this. Well, so, so there's a cohort of folks that I knew who did that. What do you think about, so what was sort of the eye-opening experience at the Fed? This was Minnesota? No, no, it was the Board of Governors in D.C. Um, oh. so it was actually working in the, um, in the, in the uh, monetary studies section, which is in, then was in monetary affairs. So they did the sort of um, uh, forecasts about the, um, you know, the nominal side of things. Um, so it was it was interesting seeing sort of what was important for policy and and sort of this important process of you know um, doing the forecasts every so often before the um, Federal Reserve Board meetings um, and it was also there was a lot of uh, emphasis on training for the research assistants so that's sort of where I first got a taste of um, econometrics. Uh, so they had some some lectures and they had some resources available for us. And so that was also um, pretty good. And I learned a little bit about, um, you know, programming and some diverse languages. So it wasn't R then, but I, we used S plus, which oh, was yeah. like a commercial version of R. Huh. You were you. So you weren't using Stata. You were using. Was there Stata back then? 90 I don't know if there was, but everybody I was in this, you know, uh, macro section. So I, I think people used um, rats and yes. gout right. and then S plus uh, for a lot of things. Oh. Did you find that you sort of had a natural aptitude for, for programming and working with data? I, I, I don't, I mean, I don't know if I would totally, I, I the, the other person in, in my uh, uh, cohort of RAs, was probably originally a better programmer than me. I think I might have caught up by the end of the time, um, but I think he had more experience. He's a finance professor now. Oh, okay. So Actually, what, he's an econometrician, yeah. has time series econometrics and finance. Oh. Chris Jones. Oh, okay, okay. So, so you you go through you must go through a bit of a change, you know, from the day one to day zero plus t. What what. What changes inside you? Because you obviously you decide at the end that you want to become a an economist, right? That was not at the beginning what you were thinking, was it? No, I think I think it was just more. Um, you know, I'd always enjoyed math, and it had been easy for me. All, all, you know, all. I mean, it got progressively a little bit. You know, it got harder over time, but um, it had always been easy for me, and I enjoyed the puzzle aspect, but it was just so removed from the real world. And so I would sort of sit there and listen to NPR and do my homework and sort of be more interested in sort of some of the the questions about the world that would come up on, you know, NPR than like, you know, the goal of solving 
the solutions. I mean, not that everybody finds homework boring sometimes, but yeah. I think that it just didn't provide enough enough excitement on its own, sort of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's what led, led me to want to do economics because I knew that sort of my uh, math skills would, you know, be valued there relative to some other things. But right. at the same at the same time, there would be the ability to sort of study people and work on issues that I cared about yeah. sort of for other reasons. Yeah. Well, who had the biggest, in, what were there professors or were there some sort of experiences that like really seminal experiences or, or people there that at the fed that really had a pretty notable impression on you when you think back? I certainly, David Wilcox was in my uh, section. He wasn't the section head, but he sort of had a long storied career at the Fed. And then now he's at the Pearson Institute. I think he's still affiliated with the Pearson Institute and of international. I don't remember what the last letter in the acronym stands for. Yeah. Um, and he was very successful research wise, but he really cared about, um, you know, policy as well. And he sort of had this dual ability to care about both of these things and yet still also sort of um, try to be a good mentor to us. I mean, not that the other people in my section weren't good mentors because they were, but I think he really stood out to me for sort of having this dual interest in policy and in sort of, um, you know, the field for its own sake. Mm -hmm. Right, 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 right. So you, this is, so what year is it when you apply for grad schools? Uh, 1993. I mean, you end up at MIT and was it, were you sort of just a, the kind of student that had a lot of self-confidence that you were just like, I'm going to go to the best school in the country. I'm going to like in the whole world, I'm going to sit and they're, they're crazy if they turn me down. I mean, is it, or have you always been that kind of person? Uh, I think you've seen me in other <laughs> professional setting, Scott. I don't think any, very many people would describe me as that person, but I think, um, you know, sort of being, succeeding up to that point and then being at the Fed and then the Fed RAs tended to go to very good schools. So I applied to a, a large variety of schools, you know, including some that I was more sure I would get into and then some I was less sure that I would get into. Um, yeah. But it seemed, um, so I had some friends who were sort of like the RAs come in in cohorts, um, just like, you know, people graduate from college and they go off usually to do this. And so mm -hmm. there were some folks ahead of me. There was one person who'd gone to MIT. And so that sort of, you know, helped me feel as though like I could succeed there. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, okay. So you kind of did have a sense of like, from you kind of felt like from talking to this person, you're like, man, I could see myself there and do, doing well. Yeah. Or at least this person who I know who did this other stuff that's like what I do now is successful doing this. Right. Um, right. Well, so what was it like, you know, when you get when you get there? I mean, what's it what's it like as I mean, I, MIT is the best program in the history of the planet. So like if I stepped foot there, I would just be like wide eyed. What was it? What was it like for you as a as a first year? I well, so it was sort of a, a combination of things. So on the one hand, I think. um uh, the math skills made a lot of the first year much easier for me than it was for many people. On the other hand, my lack of economics, I think, so I I think back then you still had to take the economic subject test to get into PhD programs. And so I'd studied a lot for that to try to, you know, get a good enough score, but I certainly didn't have 
uh, as extensive a background in economics as a lot of the other folks in the program. Um, and so sort of, I think the things I struggled with and the things they struggled with were different, but I also just remember, you know, to that point, um, I'd always just done all the work. It just had never been a thing where you didn't do all the work. And so I'm sure this is true of every PhD program in, well, so it, at MIT in your first year, you take one of the fields that you're going to take. And I took public economics and we had a, I had Jim Paterba, who I um, was a chair of my, was a co-chair of my committee along with Josh. And, um, you know, I worked it for him as an RA and, you know, the syllabus is, I don't know, 40 pages and there's like 10 papers assigned for each thing. And in my head, you know, along with some of the other folks in my class, we thought, oh, we're supposed to understand everything about all of these papers, you know? <laughs> and so I remember just feeling like I can never possibly keep up with this, you know, right. not, not, right. not realizing that this was more meant to be a tool to come back to, to sort of know yeah. if this was the area you were interested in, this is how you figure out more about it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it was also sort of a, a, a sort of strange setting because, uh, well, certainly I wasn't the most cosmopolitan amongst my classmates, let's just say. I mean, I come from a very privileged background, but, you know, there were a wide variety of people who are much more um, cosmopolitan than me. And so, you know, the, again, I think this came from having come from math, but, um, you know, I took some great advice from some classmates ahead of me when, you know, we had brown bags and you would present work in progress. And they said, you know, memorize the first few minutes of your presentation so that you can give it in this like organized cohesive way, which would, of course, that probably just wouldn't have occurred to me because I just wasn't as used to, you know, giving oral presentations as a lot of the folks who sort of had done debate and the like. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So, but it, it was a great experience too. I mean, it was um, certainly one of the most intellectual. I think this is true for everybody for grad school. It's one of the most intellectually stimulating times in your life because you're surrounded by people. You're learning a lot. You know, there's other people who are learning a lot. You can learn a lot from the other folks. You know, and then after that, hopefully, you maintain some of that with your co-authorship relationships. But it's not going to be like that intense learning that you do in in your second and third year of graduate school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. So why do you pick public? Did you have any any priors that that would have been the right? What was it about that that drew you to it? Because uh, you had trade stuff and you got this like really strong math background. You probably could have sorted, you could have, and you're at the Fed, could have, you could have gone to macro. You could, so what was it about public? I think it was uh, just wanting to sort of uh, understand um, the programs that uh, the sort of, uh, exist to help, you know, means tested programs that exist to, and social insurance programs that exist to help people and yeah. provide insurance to people. So I sort of knew that 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 a combination of that and then, you know, you, you know, so there's these more micro topics where you can uh, often imagine what the decision makers choices are, you know, yeah. maybe not what all the constraints are, but, you know, sort of more about uh, uh, studying the social safety net. So I sort of knew pretty early and I was lucky that I was taking public my first year because that was helpful for this um, to sort of get this uh, lens on things. Um, although I also enjoyed my labor courses, obviously. So so the remind me again, the first year you take public, what year is it? 92, 93? It's 94. 94. And when does the, when does the welfare reforms start to happen? 
So that was already like the, some of the waivers started in 93, but I don't think I was really very aware of it as a topic then, although I was hearing about it more, say, on the radio in 1996, um, sort of. So August uh, 1996 is when Perora gets signed. Um, but my dissertation wasn't about that. My dissertation was about uh, two of the papers were about the child support system. Um mm sort of time and money for absent fathers, because obviously if you have to, uh, if you pay, have to pay more child support, you have less time to spend with your children. Yeah. And then a paper about labor supply. And then yeah. the third paper was actually on the WIC program, which I've continued to study throughout the rest of my career. So you were just interested in these, I might've called them just anti-poverty programs, but, it, but you're kind of calling them like insurance. Is it, was well, that right? I think I think you can think of them as a floor on consumption. So, you know, they satisfy this redistribution thing. I mean, I've also, but, you know, I, I mean, part of the program, part of the public course was also a variety of social insurance programs like social security. I mean, yeah. I, so the second course was team, uh, was team taught by Peter Diamond and John Gruber. Oh, and so sort of my is probably closer to what Gruber does than what Jim Paterba is, is necessarily known for. But yeah. Could you, have, could you have predicted like in high school that these would have been your interest? You've got this interest in history, but would you have thought that, yeah, I'm going to be interested in, in a particular kind of public policy that's very focused on the poorest people in the country, floors on consumption. Is that, is that something now looking back, you can sort of see that, that this was always coming? Maybe a little bit. I mean, I certainly, so in 10th grade, we had a world history class where, um, and then in uh, 11th grade, I guess it must have been, we had American history. And I remember being sort of drawn to thinking about a lot of these, uh, you know, question about, um, you know, the New Deal and sort of the, not so much the war on poverty, but the civil rights era and sort of, you know, other sort of questions that are about like access to, to um, various opportunities for everyone, but mm -hmm. probably not. I think if you'd asked me in high school, I would have said I'd be a math, I'd be doing something related to math. Mm. Well, so you've got Josh, I was tell, I was joking with you earlier that you're like, li Josh Anger sent me the his list of his students and it was like, Marion Bettler is like number one on the list, but you told me it's not, not quite accurate, but um, I was just kind of curious. Alphabetically, I'm probably one Alphabetically, of that's right. That's right. Y you and I would have been in the same row in the same class. We would have been, you'd been in uh, that first row and I'd been in the back of the first row. So, uh, so, okay. Tell me how you, how you ended up hooking up with him since you're doing all this public stuff. I mean, so what was it that drew you to Josh? He'd been there just a couple of years, right? Yeah, I think maybe he hadn't even, maybe he'd been visiting part of the time before when I was there. And so then he taught, um, I mean, he just sort of had this uh, different way of, uh, well, so I, so I'm trying to think back. So he, he team taught a course with Steve Pischke that I was later the TA for, um, even though labor was like my, one of my minor fields. Um, and uh, I just remember being drawn to this uh, approach of sort of trying to to 
study these questions with these statistical approaches that you could sort of see in the data as well. Sort of that was very, very enticing. And he's obviously a very charismatic teacher as, you know, anybody who's sort of seen him present. I mean, uh, so I think I really was was drawn to the, to the econometric piece of it. Yeah. Um, and it was sort of right in the, you know, right when he was in the thick of things with Hito and uh, Ruben and sort of developing all these approaches. Um, yeah. Did you, could you have, did you notice it? Like, did you notice that there's something different, like this potential outcomes model or, or the way that they're like approaching instrumental variables in this like brand new, brand new way? Did it, did it strike you as unusual? Because I mean, it was like, you're learning it all. You're learning all of it at the same time. So you might not necessarily feel like any of it's particularly novel. It's like, it's all novel. No, I think, I think in the first year we sort of had simultaneous equations and I mean, you know, there's so much material. I mean, I think this is many people's experience. You sort of learn stuff when you're taking your first, you know, year of econometrics, but you don't really absorb everything that you're doing. And then later on, you know, like, slowly it became clear that this is a slightly different way of thinking about the world. Yeah. But I think I hadn't, I, th I think that they were staggered because I had labor in my second, in my second year. Uh -huh. um, so it was at a, it was after I'd sort of had these, you know, core um, econometrics. Oh, so he's teaching labor. He's not teaching yeah. econometrics. No, he wasn't. I mean, he, he taught an applied econometrics course that was like, an option, but there was, you know, um, no, I had, uh, uh, Jerry Hausman and Whitney Newey and then, um, a time series course as well. But, you know, yeah. obviously, um, I mean, we all had to take a time series, um, time series course. Well, so who were your buddies that were also in your cohort? I know that you and Jonah Gelbick, uh, overlap, is, is are, who are these, uh, who are some other people that you've kept up with from that time? I was in the class ahead of me, um, but we were, um, you know, both had worked for Jim Paterba and, you know, we were friends. Um, so uh, in my class at the time, Annette Vissing Jorgensen, who, you know, is now at the Board of Governors, but, you know, she was at uh, initially at Chicago and then Northwestern and Berkeley um, in the finance department. Um, although she didn't take these same classes. Uh, Jeff Kling, he was also the year ahead of me. Um, uh, Julie Cullen um, in the year ahead of me. Um, uh, Kim Rubin was a couple years ahead of me. She was also a research assistant for Jim. So there was a set of people who sort of worked for Jim who had an office that was like uh, in the department. Um, and so, and then behind me, Sudanarski. Mm. Um, well, did you feel like you were getting all this causal, you know, credibility revolution stuff at that beginning, or did did it did it not feel that way? I think I don't think I realized how different it was from what things had been for people who maybe had come five years before that. Uh, I think it was it was after some of this had happened, and so. I just, it was just what we learned, I think is I, how I would describe it. Yeah. Um, and so I just don't think that I had, I had the expansive view of all of it to sort of see that that's what was happening. 
But then it became clear once I sort of got out into the world a little bit. Mm. So you graduate and you go back, you go back into the government. You spent, you kind of bounced from the FTC to the Federal Reserve and then Rand Corporation. So can you tell me a little bit about, about that sorting into the, to the government as your first jobs? Cause it's, it's not as common sure. to see government back into academia or government than academia. So I'm curious about how this all worked. Yeah. So um, I certainly, first of all, I wouldn't recommend it as the uh, easiest path, but it also had a lot of advantages and that I had a lot of experiences I never would have had otherwise. And certainly, you know, when I was at the Board of Governors, I got to work on a survey, which I think has been an invaluable part of my training, because I think that is something that we as economists don't do as good a job of training our students about data collection as, say, sociology or demography do. Yeah. Um, so it was a great experience, but certainly not the easiest path. I think when I finished I thought, um, you know, uh, government would be a way to, you know, maybe naively make something of a of a difference while, you know, still, um, you know, getting to do things that maybe I cared about. Um, and then I think I, um, having not really had a very real job with a real boss before, realized that, you know, well, so first of all, the, the FTC, there wasn't really a time for research, and I had an interest in sort of continuing some research. And so, you know, I mean, I probably could have found if I had if my interest had gravitated towards more IO topics, I think it would have been fine. But that sort of wasn't so natural for me. Um, and so then at the at the board, it was clear, um, you know, it would be the most uh, it would be the most the best fit if what you were interested in doing research on fit into what the Fed cared about. And I sort of, you know, had interests that, you know, you share, I think, um, sort of thinking about um, topics like abortion legalization, where, um, you know, that's not exactly uh, in the mandate of the Fed. Um, and so we're working on this stuff at these positions like the FTC and the Fed and at what it's like, almost like your side hustle almost you've got this like, oh yeah yeah no no it was not it was not what fit. i was spending no i was not spending like my work day <laughs> on those things um no oh. it was just more that i cared about these topics so i wanted to keep working on this stuff and i mm. thought going to ran to take a postdoc it was sort of at the boom you know like shortly um before uh you know in the late 2000s it seemed like a great time to go take a postdoc and then check out the job market again oh. um, Oh, okay. So that's how I ended up at Rand. And then I got hired at Rand after that. And then I moved around some more. Um, but uh, you know, but have not moved for a while now. I've been at yeah. um I've been at uh, Davis since 2015. Well, so this paper, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about this paper with Jonah and Hillary Hoynes. There's, there's actually a, a few papers, but I'm thinking of your 2006 AR what mean impacts miss distributional effects of welfare reform experiments. You know, I, I'm in a Slack channel with Pedro Santana and Andrew Goodman Bacon. And um, they talk about this paper a lot. Andrew talks about it a fair amount as being like this uh, paper that he really learned a lot about thinking of heterogeneous treatment effects. Uh, and as he kind of tells the story, even of all this two-way fixed effects stuff, these heterogeneous treatment effects. So it's turned out to be your most cited paper. And I was just kind of curious, can you tell it for the sake of the listener, what's this paper about? 
So I think what this paper does is um, it, uh, it, so at the time that I was learning econometrics, uh, you know, um, a lot of approaches just were focused on a single beta. So there was no beta I, there was just a beta um, and it was a population parameter and you were trying to estimate it. Right. And in this paper, um, we made this connection between a simple static model of labor supply in the presence of this strange budget set that the state of uh, Connecticut adopted as part of their welfare reform that has a gigantic notch in it um, and uh, what we could estimate. Okay, yeah. so the static model predicted that, you know, because there's a notch in the budget set, as you could, you know, what, what do we think happens when there's a notch in the budget set at the top? Some people will reduce their labor supply in order to become eligible for this bonus payment because the tax rate was zero on welfare up to this point, And then you lost the entire welfare grant. Okay. Yeah. But if you go further down, people moved from a previous system where they had had nearly 100% tax on their earnings to a system where up to the poverty level, they had a 0% tax on their earnings. Uh -huh. So some people should, the static model predicts that some people should enter the labor market and some people who are working should work more. Okay. Yeah. And so we had experimental data from the state of Connecticut because one thing that was um, great for research and I think for what we understand about these programs with the welfare reform is um, DHHS, I think, decided that they had to evaluate these initial welfare waivers to see whether they were cost neutral. So they did a whole bunch of randomized control trials across different states to test out their welfare reforms. And we used the data from, from Connecticut, I mean, and what we found was exactly this pattern of effects using um, distributional approaches using QTE, quantile treatment effects, that is consistent with this static model. Um, mm. And so we found, you know, no effects for some part, because there's a lot of this welfare population that doesn't work at all, then a positive effect of being in the treatment group where you get access to this zero percent tax rate with your earnings. And then at the very top, some evidence of reduced labor supply consistent with people reducing their labor supply to qualify for this, you know, windfall benefit. Mm. And so there's this connection between this heterogeneity in terms of one's response across different uh, percentiles of the earnings distribution and the static model. And I think that's what um, made this paper uh, a success for us was it connected these predictions of the theory with this heterogeneity that we could uncover using this um, tool, which wasn't brand new. I mean, you know, there's been QTE for a long time. And right. uh, lots of people have worked on this in a whole bunch of different disciplines. Um, and, you know, Roger Kanker has been working on this forever in economics, but sort of had not been applied so frequently in quite this uh, way. Oh. Oh. But I think the connection of the model right. with the econometrics that sort of made it, you know, work. What in your community of, in your community of a of economists, these public economists. So basically it's like they, they, they must be appreciating that there's this static model that would imply all this heterogeneity. And this, there's a particular econometric model. That's just not, that's kind of not satisfying or something. I mean, is it, what was the reaction that people had to the overall paper that you sort of noticed at the time? Um, well, so, uh, So at the time, um, Heckman and co-authors like 
Jeff Smith and 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 lots of others had a lot of papers sort of thinking about um, QTE and rank preservation and all of these questions that sort of do imply that, you know, you can't from the marginal distributions, which is what we compared to get these QTE, you can't necessarily draw conclusions about individuals' responses unless you're willing to make assumptions about where people are located in the distribution. And yeah. so there was a reaction on that side. Um, then there's uh, was a more of a reaction that like, actually this wasn't some sort of fundamental heterogeneity. It was probably just that, you know, the people who we thought were, you know, at the top were actually maybe people who had some different set of characteristics. And that actually led to a second restat paper for us, where we sort of tried to take seriously the suggestion that maybe what we were capturing, you know, like the suggestion had been, well, if you had a, if you, if you took the right set of X's, you would find more something more akin to constant treatment effects within various subgroups defined by these observable characteristics. Oh. And so oh. that's what led us to this second paper where we tried to sort of show that that was not the case. And there was just an enormous amount of heterogeneity, you know, within group that swamped a lot of the cross group heterogeneity. And I think that has also been true in, in other contexts like education settings. I mean, obviously, you know, you only work on so many things, but right. in, in any of these different settings, there's just enormous amounts of heterogeneity. And, you know, in in, in a paper with Hillary and Bad Domina, where we look at the Head Start, Start Impact Study, we also sort of, you know, you can look across different groups and see that there appears to be heterogeneity, even if you sort of take people, take, a, take the distribution where you're comparing things at the same spot in the control group, you sort of still see heterogeneity in the facts for different groups, you know, which I mean, in the educational context, sometimes you can predict for, from various things in our setting. It's, um, it's about what language the kids who are in this preschool experiment uh, speak at home. Mm. Well, how do you think, what, so what's the biggest thing you think you, as a result of those projects, you know, how do you think that you're different or that you you think differently as a result of these projects you did with Jonah and Hillary? I think that it um, it has made me try to um, consider whether theory or the setting might have implications for why you would see various kinds of heterogeneity before starting a project and to sort of try to think about what's the most suitable, um, you know, what's the most suitable approach to a particular question. And I think it also, you know, it also sort of makes um, something like this staggered difference in difference attention to sort of differences in average in treatment effects across locations over time, not even remotely surprising given this nice. enormous heterogeneity that seems to show up across all these other dimensions. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that's a natural, you know, um, thing that has stuck with me about this. Um, you think that this is coming? I mean, you and Jonah both are Josh's student and he's got this at that time, this local average treatment effect paper, which has heterogeneous treatment effects conceptually in it. I mean, is this just something that might've been baked into y'all's DNA a little bit, or is it really just coming from this like theoretical model driving this, you know, you, you didn't need all that late stuff to kind of be thinking this way? I'm sure it helped. Uh, I I would say like at the time, did I have a broad enough view of econometrics to really 
understand things the same way I do now? Probably not. Maybe Jonah yeah. did. Um, maybe Hillary did. I'm not sure if, if I did, but I think it's sort of, it was baked into me without me even necessarily realizing it. Mm -hmm. That might be how I would describe it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how come you guys work so well together? Do you think? I mean, I always, I've heard somebody say, you know, once you find these teams uh, that you, that you work well together, you just need to not break up. So, you know, you need to, y'all need to work together. How come you guys worked so well together? You know, I think when we started, um, so Jonah and I were good friends in graduate school. And so that was part of it. We became very interested in working on welfare reform. And then we got connected to Hillary, who was also working in this. So I think um, a piece of it was, you know, that we had this, this friendship bond and had sort of been trained the same way across a whole bunch of things. And we were also, um, you know, very like all three of us were very substitutable at the time. Um, you know, so I'm sure you have had this experience where you have some co-authorship um, partnerships where you're, you know, substitutes and some where you're compliments and yeah. maybe you're more productive when you're compliments, but it's kind of more fun when you're substitutes. Um, um, so yeah. I think at the beginning, that was, that was a big piece of it. And we had this substantive interest that also brought us together. And, um, you know, it's certainly helped that Jonah and I were in the same. So this was before Zoom, obviously, but before Skype, when you could do phone calls. And so it was enormously helpful, I think, at the beginning, that Jonah and I were in the same location. And then it turned out that, you know, um, I was moving to RAN, which was in Southern California, and Jonah went to go do a um, RWJ um, postdoc for a couple of years. And I spent some of the time, you know, in between places. Um, and so it was easier for us to collaborate, I think, yeah. you know, just the ability that we were like, you know, neither one of us uh, had children. Hillary had children, but she was living in Berkeley and Jonah was, you know, in Berkeley. And so that made it, that really reduced the cost of the collaboration. But I really think it was this sort of shared interest in this question. And then um, also to some extent in this, in like exploring some of these methods, you know, I, more methodological issues than maybe was the core piece of some of our welfare reform, yeah. other welfare reform work. Yeah. yeah. And then Jonah decided he wanted to be a lawyer and study lawyer. civil procedure. And, you know, he still does econometrics, but he's he, not he so in these questions anymore. He broke up the Beatles. He broke up the team. Yeah. <laughs> but Hillary and I continue to be interested in these means tested programs and have continued to work together for a long time. Okay. You know, it's funny when I was in grad school, I actually only because I did not study this type of public policy. I really only knew of your work with Madeline Zavadi on abortion. How do y'all can you tell me a little bit about the history of that work? Sure. So we were also friends in grad school. Um, Madeline was a couple of years ahead of me and um, we were both interested in this question and uh, we started working on it together. And it was my first publication, actually, was in the Journal of Health Economics with Madeline. I'm sure it wasn't her first publication. She has a very active research agenda on immigration and the minimum wage at the time was what she'd done her dissertation on. Um, but sort of, we were sort of, again, deeply interested in this question um, in terms of, you know, unexpected uh, consequences for, uh, women and families and children when you um, take away access to abortion. And what so was and what was the policy lever that was being studied? So the first paper was about um, uh, uh, 
waiting periods and res other restrictions on uh, abortion timing. And so, you know, when like you Mississippi, um, mandatory, mandatory waiting, is it like Mississippi and a few other states? I can't remember these states. Yeah, it, it was policies similar to that, as well as uh, sort of, you know, uh, like some parental restriction notification, parental, some of the, some of the other things we studied. And, oh, yeah. you know, we combined. Um, so I guess if I were describing my own work, I think there's like a uh, also an effort to try to use the tools that are right. And I'll, and to, I mean, I, everybody does that, but you know, like I like, sorry, let me say it differently. I like learning new tools. Other people maybe don't enjoy that as much. So for me, that's a plus when I get to learn something new for a paper. Um, and, you know, we used a couple different data sets. We used CDC reports of abortions and we yeah. also used um, the Guttmacher Institute ones um, and sort of, you know, we did some archival work to, well, maybe not really archival, but we dug up some data on abortions to sort of look at, um, I mean, adoptions to look at the effects of um, uh, legalization of abortion on the time, on adoptions, um, you know, which was kind of an interesting question. And then we were led to think about, um, you know, the effect of restricting access to abortion on um, child abuse. Oh, Wow. Oh, then that's why you handled my paper at Economic Inquiry on foster care. Exactly. exactly. Oh, okay. Now it's all coming together. Oh, that's neat. Okay. Um, oh, so do you and Madeline still work together? Do y'all still, are you I mean, with all, so much, it seems like the abortion, the abortion literature has just exploded uh, even more with all the supply side re restrictions and even these big, you know, big changes. Are y'all still working together? No, we sort of, uh, I, uh, we, um, the last paper we worked on was about the Medicaid expansions of the, the 19, you know, the late 19, mid 1980s and early 1990s that, you know, were in the sort of Curry and Gruber and Gruber and Cutler papers uh -huh. um, on fertility behavior. And we had such a challenging time getting that paper published that I think it sort of, you know, uh, maybe soured us both on the sort of some of these questions. Um, uh, and, and both of our research, my research has evolved more to be about these safety net programs um, with some amount of economic demography still involved, but it's not the main thing that I do. And, you know, Madeline's work has moved towards immigration and, uh, you know, where she's an expert. Right, right, right. Well, so... Uh... I, I, it's top of the hour and I wanted to kind of close with something. So I, I sometimes ask my guests um, if you could go back and talk to your old self when she was a student, what do you think uh, has been one of the best lessons you've learned that you wish you could tell her? It could be about papers, but it doesn't have to be, you know, what is it that you sort of think you could say this, this is, this has really been a special thing I've learned and you would like to tell her that, tell her that. I would go back and say, go spend some time around demographers and sociologists when you're in grad school, which was not something that was, you know, easy to do at MIT. Um, and take more econometrics and more stats. I if I could go back, I would take the second year advanced sequence in econometrics. And I also would have tried to take some things in the stats department. I think mm. those would have been the things that professionally would have been the most useful for me. What would you have substituted out of though? If you had to, I don't you, know. I, I was in a hurry. I was like convinced I wanted to be done with graduate school quickly. So I could have, I think it would not have been 
too difficult to stay for a fifth year and I could have fit oh, in you some of that. Four. Yeah. Oh, got it. Got it. Yeah. 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 Great. I'm sure I would have also, uh, you know, benefited from another year before going on the job market, but that's another, that's not the reason that I say any of this. Yeah, sure. No, no, no. That's right. Yeah. Well, it's so nice to get to talk. I feel like I've, this is such a nice time for us to to talk and for you to share your story with me. I really appreciate you being so open about everything. Sure. No, I hope you found some, I hope you can win this down into an interesting uh, conversation. I look I forward so. to hearing it. Okay, cool. All right. Well, you have a great day. Dude, thanks. Thanks.